Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Paige Burgess, Counsel in Ropes and Gray's Anti-Corruption and International Risk Practice. What I'll be talking about today is a basic introduction to building a sanctions compliance program. This is aimed at corporates, um, that is non-financial institutions. Financial institutions are subject to a whole host of requirements which are relevant to sanctions compliance, including customer due diligence requirements, know your customer requirements, suspicious activity reporting under the anti-money laundering laws. Um, so they're, they're an entity on their own in terms of uh, sanctions compliance programs and, of course, the unique business model of financial institutions. Um, so rather than focusing on that already heavily regulated segment, the aim of my talk today is to give an overview to companies who may or may not have given as much thought to their sanctions compliance programs in the past. Um, but of course, I draw on guidance for financial institutions um, and from my experience in financial institutions to help break down the component parts of a sanctions compliance program. So sanctions, like anti-bribery and corruption laws, and unlike, as I said, certain anti-money laundering requirements, apply to individuals and entities no matter what their business is, and including um, if an individual is acting in their own personal capacity. Um, so I'll speak in a moment about the jurisdiction of sanctions um, and, and how those apply to different individuals and entities, but it's just, it's really a subject matter that everyone should, should be aware of. And I think enforcement actions, both from the U.S. and from the U.K., demonstrate that regulators will enforce against companies of all sizes, of all business areas, um, and they will take into account whether that company has given thought to their sanctions compliance program and whether they had controls in place at the time of any breaches to both determine a whether to take action and b to determine the amount of the ultimate penalty. So because of this, sanctions are really a topic that everyone should be familiar with. And it may be at the end of the day that sanctions risks are quite low and therefore a company decides that it doesn't need to do much in terms of the sanctions compliance program. Um, but that doesn't mean the company doesn't have to do that work to assess the risks and to document the reasons why or why not um, it decided to, to do something. So I'll touch on this um, in a moment when I discuss risk assessment. So first of all, let's start out with what are sanctions? Um, sanctions are implemented by national governments and international bodies, namely the United Nations, um, and have historically been targeted um, towards specific individuals or entities or export controls on military or dual-use goods. The purpose of sanctions is to change behavior of a regime in a particular country or to change the behavior or punish bad actors. So the United Nations um, implements sanctions. Typically, these are limited, as I said, to asset freezes, to travel bans, and to export controls related to military or dual-use goods, that is, goods with a potential military and non-military purpose. UN member states have to implement UN sanctions into their national law. Different countries have different ways of doing this, but every UN member state must comply. 
the EU is another big actor in the sanctions space. Um, the EU Council directives on sanctions have direct legal effect in member states, but member states are responsible for implementing the sanctions and enforcing breaches of sanctions within their own jurisdictions. The UK is, at the moment, implementing EU sanctions in full throughout the transition period. Um, Rope and Gray have issued guidance on this in more detail, uh, if you'd like to see about the UK's powers with respect to sanctions post-transition, uh, but for the moment, it, it is the same. Um, and then, of course, the United States is another big player in implementing sanctions. And the U.S. has been a bit of an outlier historically in terms of the more broad scope of their sanctions programs. Um, so when I talk about sanctions programs, there are two broad types of sanctions. They're either list-based or targeted sanctions programs, or what I'll call comprehensive or country-based sanctions programs. And within the comprehensive and country-based sanctions programs, I'm also including sectoral sanctions, which are sanctions targeted at particular sectors within a country. The primary current examples include capital markets restrictions related to Venezuela and Russia, although there are other examples of sectoral sanctions at the moment. So when we talk about sanctions, we're talking about those two different types, list-based or comprehensive um, or country-based sanctions. A bit of terminology here, in terms of list-based sanctions, the United States terminology for the names of individuals and entities on the list is specially designated nationals or SDNs. And the terminology for the EU slash UK side of things um, for individuals and entities on the sanctions list is designated persons or DPs. So I'll try and say sanctioned persons throughout, um, but I may say DP or SDN when I'm talking about enforcement, particularly for one side of the pond or, or the other. Now, moving on to jurisdictional scope of sanctions, the EU applies sanctions restrictions to anyone located within the EU territory, to EU nationals, no matter where they're located, as well as to companies incorporated under the law of a member state, um, including branches of those companies. Um, and this is very similar jurisdiction to the U.S. If you are located in the U.S. at the time of your activity, if you are a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident, i.e. a green card holder, and if the company is incorporated in the U.S., including branches and for some programs, subsidiaries of U.S. companies, as well as for activity that takes place in the U.S., then you need to comply with um, U.S. sanctions laws. The U.S. takes a very broad approach to activity which will deem to come under, uh, or which, which will deem to be to take place in the U.S. For example, if a transaction is denominated in U.S. dollars and that clears through a bank that's located in the U.S., that will invoke U.S. sanctions jurisdiction. Um, and a lot of banks has, have fallen afoul of this in the past where although the activity and the decision-making took place outside of the U.S., the fact that U.S. dollars was a currency used in the payment and that 
flowed through a bank located in the U.S. was sufficient for the U.S. sanction regulator, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, to say, U.S. jurisdiction applies, you've violated U.S. sanctions. Another thing to keep in mind in terms of jurisdiction is export controls. So export controls are a huge topic um, that can form hours and hours of discussion. Um, but what I want to point out here is that export controls form part of certain sanctions programs, so it can go hand-in-hand hand with sanctions, and also can sit on their own. There, there are individual um, export controls programs. What you need to be aware of here is the origin of the good, and that will determine whether or not uh, a particular export control applies. So, for example, in the U.S., they, again, take a quite expansive view, particularly depending where, where a good ends up, of U.S. jurisdiction. Um, and for certain countries like Syria and Iran, if there's a, a minimus portion of the good that incorporates U.S. origin content that will deem to fall under the U.S. export controls and, and sanctions related, related to that good. So moving on to the U.K., like I said, we, we have some separate guidance about uh, the U.K. nexus, um, particularly post-Brexit. But again, these, this is if you are a U.K. national, if you're a legal entity incorporated in the U.K., and if activities take place within UK's the UK's territory. So I think it remains to be seen how broad uh, or narrow the UK authorities will, will take that um, jurisdictional element going forward. Before I move on, I'd like to mention another type of sanctions known as secondary sanctions. The list-based and comprehensive sanctions that I referenced at the beginning are what is known as primary sanctions. That is, they apply to individuals and entities where jurisdiction applies. Secondary sanctions, on the other hand, are a way for national governments, and here I'm really just talking about the U.S., try to influence the behavior of foreign companies and individuals that that national government doesn't have any jurisdiction over. Secondary sanctions threaten a menu of options, typically in this case, losing access to elements of the U.S. financial system if an entity does whatever it is that the secondary sanction aims to prohibit. Most of the U.S. secondary sanctions seek to deter trading with Iran, but also seek to deter trading with Cuba. To counteract secondary sanctions from the U.S. side, the EU has implemented what is known as blocking legislation, which prohibits EU companies from making the decision to cease business uh, with Iran or Cuba in order to comply with U.S. secondary sanctions. And I'll touch on this a bit more later. I want to talk a bit about some enforcement cases recently, which to me really highlight, again, this theme that it doesn't matter what industry you're in, it doesn't matter um, what type of company, there is an expectation that companies will have to think about the sanctions risks and determine what controls are appropriate in order to mitigate those risks. One example um, from the U.S. is Elf Cosmetics. This is a cosmetic company that bought false eyelash kits from two companies in China. However, those Chinese companies actually sourced the kits from North Korea. Here, the interesting point is, of course, 
this is that indirect connection uh, to North Korea, the actual counterparty was based in China. But because ELF had no OFAC compliance program to speak of, they, their sourcing diligence process focused entirely on quality assurance of goods and other business aspects. And they didn't conduct any diligence related to the sanctions risk of their sourcing. So in an area like China with proximity to North Korea, in that business area where it's known or should be known to the company that North Korea produces those types of beauty goods, the company should have had a process to, be, to assess that risk, to be aware, and to take some steps to diligence their their sources their uh, the the companies that they were sourcing from to determine whether there could be that indirect exposure to North Korea. Another recent enforcement action involved the General Electric Company. GE had a relationship with a Canadian customer, which OFAC found was providing direct and indirect benefits to an SDN based in Cuba. GE had renewed the customer relationship several times over the years with this particular customer, but hadn't, as part of their due diligence process, picked up on the fact that that Canadian customer had a relationship with the SDN, even though that relationship was available in the public domain. To make matters worse, GE approved the SDN as a third-party payor from the customer and accepted checks directly from the SDN to make payments on the customer's behalf. GE was screening the names of payors, but the software that they were using only screened an abbreviation of the SDN's name and didn't screen the full legal entity name or the acronym, which was the data contained in, in GE systems and which was on the checks that they were receiving. So this case really demonstrates the importance of, firstly, risk-based due diligence on customers on a regular basis when you update that customer relationship, as well as testing the screening software to make sure that it picks up name variations that are relevant to your business. Similarly, um, Apple had an enforcement action last year with OFAC, where Apple's screening system was unable to pick up the fact that the name in their database was in capital letters, but the name on OFAC's sanctions list was in lowercase letters. So they clearly haven't done any testing to see whether their screening software was able to pick up capital letters versus lowercase letters. They also had information on the owner of the SDN, um, but that person was listed as an account administrator. And Apple didn't screen against account administrators. They only screened against quote unquote developers. So this highlights the importance of picking who you screen and making sure that if there are critical third parties that you're dealing with, that, that, that you screen if those risks are there. Um, moving on to the UK side, um, in Raphael's Bank and TravelX, which, which is related to actually the same customer, in both of those cases, Raphael's Bank and TravelX had this person's passport details, which clearly showed the name, date of birth, nationality, which would have easily allowed them to confirm that that person was a designated person, um, but yet didn't pick up that they were dealing with a designated person and still dealt with the funds and breach of sanctions. 
In the Tyrion case, it's a bit more complicated, um, but illustrates that there can be an indirect connection to a designated person, which could still um, put a company at risk for sanctions breaches. Here, Tyria indirectly facilitated telephone calls to a designated person, Syria Tell. And the provision of the service led to an economic benefit to the designated person, which of course is where the breach occurred. Um, so it's having that those diligence processes in place and assessing the risks of your business and making sure that you put in controls in order to mitigate those risks. And looking at enforcement cases is, is really one of the best ways to, to do this, to determine what went wrong for someone else and see how that can apply for your business. The record cases up to this point have been against uh, financial institutions. Um, but again, just because of the different uh, business models and regulations applicable to those, um, I wanted to focus a bit more on the more basic um, screening errors and enforcement cases against non-financial institutions. So in terms of guidance to look for sanctions compliance, um, the U.S. has released guidance on OFAC compliance commitments. The U.K. regulator, the Office of Foreign Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI for short, also has released guidance, um, and it has a blog on uh, certain topics like screening. There are also industry groups that have released guidance. Uh, one that's particularly noteworthy for financial institutions is from Wolfberg Group. Now, that's a group of major international banks, so it's not approved by any regulators, um, and it's also not directly applicable to non-financial institutions who don't have significant um, payments and customer onboarding in the same way, but it, it can be helpful, particularly in terms of getting some of the terminology down. Um, and other individual regulators have also released some guidance. For example, the Netherlands earlier this year uh, released some guidance um, for Dutch companies on um, implementing sanctions compliance programs. Now, these different pieces of guidance break down the elements of a sanctions compliance program in slightly different ways, but they're all essentially saying very similar things. And if you're familiar with the six principles of an anti-bribery and corruption compliance program, which are set out in the UK Ministry of Justice guidance, then this should also sound very familiar to you. For my talk today, I'm breaking the elements down into five buckets. Number one, risk assessment and setting risk appetite. Number two, policies and procedures. Number three, screening systems. Four, testing. And five, internal controls. The first and the most important, I think, because it drives all the others, is the risk assessment. Um, and as part of that, setting risk appetite. What do I mean by risk assessment? That's sitting down and thinking, okay, where in our business could we actually be exposed to sanctions risk? Now, this should sound familiar from thinking about an anti-bribery and corruption risk assessment. And in fact, a sanctions risk assessment should ideally be part of the broader compliance risk assessment, international risk assessment. This makes it both more efficient um, and probably a lot more effective um, in doing a risk assessment because so many of these risks overlap with each other. That said, 
and this is a question I got get a lot, sanctions inherent risks are different from bribery and corruption risk. And there isn't a simple crossover. So I don't want to pick out any countries, um, but just to talk a bit about corruption risks, a lot of companies will look at Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index and may um, have a system for um, risk rating countries from a corruption perspective based on that. But countries at very high risk of corruption as per the um, TI index may not have very much to do with sanctions risk and vice versa. So it's, it's not a clear crossover, particularly in terms of that country inherent risk. It will also depend very much on the business. Um, and paying attention to what's in the media and what's in enforcement about sanctions breaches in your particular business. Thinking about Elf, for example, um, when sourcing from Chinese companies, beauty companies should be aware that one of the products that North Korea produces includes um, those false eyelash kits, other beauty products. North Korea is also known for producing coal, for example. Um, and if you're in that particular industry, that's what you have to keep in mind. And then geographical risk will be any countries that surround um, that company. So if you're concerned about oil and gas, and you have a lot of distributors, for example, in United Arab Emirates, which is just across the border from Iran, then that will, of course, be an increased risk for you with respect to um, that particular sanctions risk. So again, it's about being aware of what's out there in the media. There are a lot of different ways to calculate risk assessment and what is probably the most annoying um, piece of advice is there is no one size fits all approach, um, but it, it really is true. However, to give some comfort to that, companies really can be practical about this and targeted. Um, the risk assessment exercise does not need to be bigger or more complex than is warranted based on the actual risks in a company's business. Another question I get asked a lot is whether or not a company can take into account the volume of the transactions and the revenue um, in assessing risk. So what I want to say here is that there's no de minimis requirement for sanctions breach. Um, and if you look back at some of the early UK enforcement cases, they were really quite small amounts. So in that sense, your biggest business, the highest turnover and revenues may not be highest sanctions risk per se, and you don't want to ignore things that have a very high inherent risk just because it's a quite a small amount. But at the same time, taking a practical approach, if there's more business uh, and there's more turnover, that obviously will mean that there's more opportunity for risk. So it is appropriate to take into account um, the volume of transactions and the revenue from a particular business line uh, in assigning certain risk weightings to that. So not to spend a bit, not to spend too much uh, more time on this because it's a, it's a really big topic, um, but in calculating risk rating, you'll look at the inherent risk, 
there are crossovers, like I said, here with anti-bribery and corruption risk assessment, although the, the answer that you get will not necessarily be the same, particularly with country. Um, so here, I mentioned comprehensive sanctions programs at the beginning. Are there comprehensive sanctions programs on that country? Um, I talked about list-based sanctions programs. There are also a list of countries against um, or within which there are individuals and entities on lists. Um, so have a look at those, compile the list-based and comprehensive sanctions programs. Um, think about countries that border those, whether, as I said, your business has actual ties um, to the type of activity that happens in some of these countries that are the subject to uh, list-based or comprehensive sanctions programs. Sector, of course, whether the whether any of the sanctions target activities um, or entities in your particular sector um, that's known for sanctions risk. So I already mentioned one um, being oil and gas, but shipping, um, given the importance to you know shipping potentially sanctioned goods. Um, think about the delivery channels. This means. How well do you have the opportunity to know your counterparty? Do you ever meet your customers or your suppliers? Um, do you receive unsolicited business? Have you had a long time relationship with the counterparties that you're dealing with? All of that will factor into increasing or mitigating risk. Obviously, what product do you provide? Is it goods? Is it services? Um, and then, and who are your counterparties? What are they family owned? Um, are they do they have complex ownership structures? Again, lots of this with, with some of the crossovers of um, anti-corruption risk and should should certainly be part of your overall international risk assessment. Based on the result of the risk assessment, the company will then determine what areas of the business it deems as high risk. What categories the company uses, again, will be dependent. It may be customer type, product type. It may be the geography, where the sales are going or where supplies are being purchased from. Quite often, companies will use three categories of risk rating, high, medium, low, although I've seen many different methods of doing this. And for whatever the category the company chooses, let's say higher risk customers, the company should apply additional tailored controls to that higher risk bucket and may decide then to apply less stringent controls to medium and low risk categories of customers. And when I say high here, it's important to know I mean higher relative to the other areas. And this is very individual to the company and as well to their risk appetite. If the business is entirely focused on developing markets, for example, they'll still need a way to categorize risk and to focus resources and to implement enhanced controls where risk is relatively higher for that company. And now risk appetite. Risk appetite is very personal, so to speak, to the company. This is what controls, once you determine what risks uh, apply to the business, determine what controls the company will need to have in place in order to feel comfortable carrying on uh, with the business. Um, other questions are, 
what sanction programs will the company apply? So obviously a company has to apply sanctions programs where jurisdiction is there. Um, but some companies may want to apply sanctions programs in other areas or globally as well. One thing I need to point out here is um, the EU blocking statutes, uh, which if for any companies that are in, incorporated and operating in the EU, they prohibit EU persons from um, making decisions to cease business in order to comply with US sanctions on Iran and Cuba. So this is obviously too big a topic for today's podcast, um, but certainly one that um, we deal with a lot and help companies come through a lot. Sanctions programs are implemented for a number of different reasons, as I said. Um, some of those actually include corruption risks, uh, as well as um, individuals and entities who are listed for um, engaging in drug, drug trafficking, from engaging in rights abuses, and a number of other of nefarious reasons. So there are money laundering and there are corruption risks of dealing with sanctioned persons or in sanctioned countries that can have little or very little to do with the simple fact that they're on sanctions list. So this is another thing to think about in risk appetite. There can be reputational risks uh, for dealing with some of these parties as well. At the same time, there can be reputational risks for not dealing with certain countries or certain parties due to sanctions risk, in addition to the EU blocking statute that I mentioned before. But for example, um, certain banks have withdrawn from, from areas and faced reputational blowback um, due to potential humanitarian impacts of, of um, withdrawing that business. So again, this risk appetite question is something that's incredibly tailored to the company. Um, and it's something that senior management and the board have to be a part of. This is absolutely critical. Um, and I said at the beginning that this was really the most important thing because, again, once you find the risk and then you determine the risk appetite, this drives the controls that, that come through there. So how much information will the company need in order to feel comfortable going ahead with a sale? Um, what's the point at which a lack of information means that, you know, something's just not going to happen or, or not going to be approved? Those types of questions um, that, that need to be thought, thought through at the beginning of designing a sanctions compliance program. One of the mistakes that I, I have seen um, in the past that companies make is they start putting in place the controls, right? They, they write the policies and procedures, they, they start screening, um, but without thinking, well, what, what activity are they trying to take up? What, what parties are, do they actually think that they may run up against um, and, and lead to sanctions risk? Um, because there's really, there's no point implementing a control if it's not mitigating a risk that's, that's real for you. So this, this practical approach, I think, can, it sounds very complicated, and, and I suppose it is, but at the same time, having some comfort that a practical approach um, and, and doing things that make sense for the business and only things that make sense for the business um, can, can hopefully give some comfort to companies getting started with this. So the next broad category that, that I talk about are policies and procedures. Um, 
a bit of a definitional point. Um, policies are more high-level documents, to my mind. They set out the risk appetite, the high-level statements of the company's approach to sanctions, what laws they comply with, the consequences for non-compliance, um, whereas the procedures are a more detailed set of instructions about how to enact the policy requirements. So, for example, who is responsible for what? How do you review screening alerts? How do you document decisions? Um, and it depends on the size of the company. Oftentimes, policies and procedures will be switched together. It may be called a policy, but it has elements of the procedure. It, it doesn't really matter as long as it, it works for the company and it makes sense um, for the audience. And it's really critical that the business is involved in designing this um, because they're the ones that, that will tell you where it makes sense to do certain things and, and what's actually going to be practical and, and followed. So absolutely critical to have business involved with every step of this. Policies and procedures are obviously not the end-all and be-all, and having a written requirement doesn't necessarily mean that that requirement is followed, but written policies and procedures really are the necessary first step, and that's why I break this out into its own category. In some of my past work, I often dealt with companies who told me that they had certain requirements or controls in place, but that they just weren't documented. And my response to that is always, well, how do you prove then that employees know what's expected of them in order to undertake the requirement? And particularly from a regulator's perspective, if something isn't written down, they'll think it didn't happen. And this applies across policies and procedures requirements, as well as any of the decisions that are made with respect to the sanctions compliance program, such as decisions on what to screen, how to mark down um, decisions about alerts, and decisions you make whether a certain type of business is prohibited or permitted. So now I want to talk about screening systems and starting with definition here again about what is screening. It's just comparing one set of, set of data against another. Typically, when we talk about screening in the sanctions context, what we mean is name screening. Um, and that's the data that the company holds against um, about a particular person against the sanctions list data. Ideally, screening should be built into an already existing due diligence process. And the business input here is incredibly important to say, well, when does it make sense to screen? Who has the capacity to do it? Um, and these are all the specifics that will be set out in, in the procedures. But for companies, one of the first questions that they need to answer is, well, who do you screen? Most companies are probably selling to someone, so they will have customers. Um, but they may also have suppliers. They may also sell through agents or distributors. And if you're selling through agents and distributors, you have that additional indirect risk um, that I mentioned before in one of the enforcement cases. Um, there was another enforcement case recently where actually a company was held liable um, for their products ultimately being sold on to sanctioned persons uh, through a distributor. So 
this is a very difficult question because if you have a huge number of distributors and a huge number of end users, it may not be practical or possible to screen every single one of them. But this is where, as well, the risk assessment comes in because once you know where your highest risks are, you can make decisions about, okay, well, we're only going to screen every end user in these particular countries or with these particular distributors. And you may make a decision to do less um, with respect to lower risk areas of the business. Other questions include, do you capture ownership of your counterparties? Um, do you conduct additional diligence in terms of uh, adverse media? Um, and, and this should be part of your entire third party risk management program as well, particularly for anti-bribery and corruption. And then when do you screen? So ideally, you want to know whether you're dealing with a sanctioned party before you become legally obligated to provide whatever you're providing. So goods, services, or funds if you're purchasing something. Um, and certainly, you want to know before you actually transfer funds or receive funds um, from a sanctioned party. But what does that look like in your particular business? How do you use a system to book customer orders or to is issue invoices? At what stage of that process um, would this make sense? And ideally, a company should integrate the screening as much as possible um, with static data and systems that they already maintain. There are two types of screening that we tend to talk about, and one's automated and one's manual. Um, manual screening is a person physically typing in names. Um, this presents additional risk. So for example, typos, um, also known as keystroke errors in the uh, technical terminology. Um, and it's also a, an additional risk of, well, maybe someone forgot to do it or they're too busy or they just missed over it. Um, whereas automated, automated screening is, for example, every time a customer order comes in, that goes into an SAP system and then the screening automatically takes place from there. You can see very clearly how that will reduce uh, potential risk. Software. Again, no one size fits all. It's all about how you screen, what software solution you use, but what is important is to make sure that it is sufficient to mitigate the risk that the company actually presents. There's the screening at the initial start of the relationship, but also think about doing it on an ongoing basis and how often that makes sense. For really large companies, they may do it on a daily basis, but for smaller companies, that may, A, not be possible, but B, just not really be necessary based on, on the risk. And again, based on the risk assessment, you can also make decisions about only screening certain parties um, more often, um, and others may do on a less frequent basis. All right, so you brought the screen and we decided to use screening again. Um, now, what do you do once you get what is called an alert? An alert is when there is a potential match of the name held in your system against the name on the list. Now, uh, the terminology here is true matches, where there's pretty much no doubt that the particular name, let's say your customer, is the same name as a financial sanctions list. A potential match 
is one where there's some similarities in the name, but maybe you're not sure and you need to check, um, get more information on that particular customer, for example, their nationality or where they're located or their date of birth in order to determine whether it's the same person. And a false positive is one where you've got an alert back from your screening system, which shows it's it may be a match. There's some similarities in the name, but you can tell looking at it that there's some differences. Now, I want to talk a bit about fuzzy matching here. And this is really where Apple and GE ran into some trouble. Fuzzy matching is the ability of the screening system to pick up either different letters or different differences in uh, capitalization or sometimes inversions, letters, typos, so on and so forth. Now, fuzzy screening, if it's too loose, so to speak, you end up with a lot of false matches where it's clearly not the same person, but the screening software is, is casting a wide net. However, if it's too narrow, then you may miss um, some, some true matches that are, are just have some differences in spelling like what happened to uh, Apple and CGE. And of course, it's important that the data in, that the company holds is up to date um, and correct as well, because if you're not correct, collecting the right information from your counterparties, then it's not gonna pick up matches um, if, if your data quality is poor. And of course, sanctioned parties are known to use false personal information and to try to evade detection of their activities, um, typically by using name variations like reversing the names, removing numbers from the names of entities, um, and other things like that. So these types of protocols um, you should think about and test as well in the screening software. But again, to highlight, this is only within the bounds of the risks assessed in that initial risk assessment and, and absolutely no need to go overboard and, and have the absolute best of the best screening software um, where a company has you know quite localized operations and, and deems that they're at, at fairly low risk of, of running up against any sanctioned parties. The next type of screening that we typically talk about is known as transaction screening, um, or when banks may, may be known as payment screening. So in banks, this typically refers to the automated screening of payment messages, just messages. Um, but within uh, a company can also be relevant um, because all companies make payments and receive payments. So this is far less likely to be an automated process uh, for companies, um, but that doesn't mean there shouldn't be procedures to um, have some oversight over um, payments that are going in and out. And hopefully companies should have these already for uh, fraud, anti-fraud purposes, for quality assurance purposes, um, for corruption purposes as well, anti-corruption purposes. Um, so for example, if a customer asks you to um, or a supplier asks you to pay a third party, um, you would want to have a process to check who that third party is, to check that that's all above board. Um, and another thing that, that you may want to include here um, as a final check is 
and perhaps this is the finance team that does this. You integrate this again into the procedures that are already in place within the company to um, have an additional check against where the money is going to. Is it going to a country um, that it is that that that's subject to targeted sanctions or that's um, one of your higher risk countries as per your risk assessment? Um, and put in place a manual process to escalate transactions um, if there are any questions about that. I talked about testing a bit in terms of the, the sanctions screening testing. You check that whatever software you're using actually hits against the sample of names that you know should, it should hit against. Uh, you evaluate the quality of the alerts generated. If you're getting too many false hits, um, then you may need to adjust the uh, sanction screening software. This screening can be integrated into um, other due diligence measures, as I said. So, for example, if if one of the re the requirements for higher risk customers is to um, do a negative news search, a lot of screening software can do that at the same time. Can also review for political exposures at the same time. So integrate as much as possible um, the, the screen that you're doing and, and test that you're getting back quality um, alerts. Because if there are too many, then of course the company runs the risk that they can't review them all and they may miss things. Um, or whoever's responsible for reviewing them, um, you know, has has a higher likelihood of missing things because they're just used to seeing low quality false alerts time and time again, and and can get a bit of fatigue there. Of course, testing doesn't just mean testing screening alerts, but it also includes testing the implementation of all the policy and procedure requirements and using the results of this testing to improve on policies and procedures. Testing can be done internally or externally through an audit process or performed by the compliance team as part of regular monitoring. The key here is to not only implement controls once and then you're done, but to find a way to regularly monitor the effectiveness of those controls, whether they're being followed, whether they're fit for purpose, and to adapt them as a result of the monitoring findings. And, and document all of this testing and the metrics, report the metrics upwards, make sure that senior management understands how all of this works, um, and document that you've done that. The final category I want to talk about is internal controls. On the definition point again, a control is just a practice, a policy, a procedure that's designed to achieve an objective of mitigating a particular risk or a set of risks. So everything that I've talked about is an example of an internal control. But what I mean by this category are other critical internal controls. These include training of staff, including enhanced training where necessary for higher risk roles. It also includes ensuring that the people who are responsible for implementing compliance controls and making decisions about whether something's permissible or impermissible have the adequate experience and the adequate resourcing to do so, and also have the support and the backup from senior management when they're making these difficult decisions. And critically, there should be that tone from the top from senior management and the board. Everyone should be familiar now with the term tone from the top, which refers to the attitude and the culture of a company towards compliance, particularly at the senior levels. 
So terms on the top applies equally to sanctions compliance as with other areas such as anti-bribery and corruption. Finally, on culture, there's also an important question of issues management. Have employees raised issues or concerns? How are these handled and investigated? Are they taken seriously? Are issues remediated on a timely basis? All of this factors into the effectiveness of a sanctions compliance program and the messages that employees receive on the importance of the sanctions compliance program and are factors that regulators have shown they will look at in determining the amount of a breach. Other aspects of internal controls, um, which are driven by the risk assessment and the risk appetite, also include the controls that you have with third parties. So representations and warranties and contracts. Do you send questionnaires um, to suppliers? Do you ask uh, distributors or agents to provide end-use certification? Do you have audit rights? Um, what kind of testing or, or screening do you like do you do on the ultimate end users or the ultimate suppliers? Um, one recent case in which a, a, a company had representations and warranties um, with their distributor that, that the goods would not be sold on to sanctioned parties. But ultimately, the goods were sold on to sanctioned parties and OFAC still enforced against the company. So that really demonstrated that it's not enough to simply have those representations and warranties in your contract. There needs to be some additional diligence and some additional testing and questioning, particularly in high-risk areas, or those areas that you need to be high-risk, um, to get some comfort that the goods are not going to be sold on to sanctioned parties. And internal controls also include whether there's sufficient technology um, and infrastructure in order to support the compliance programs. So none of this is unique in particular to, um, to the sanctions compliance program, um, but it is something that OJAC and OSCE um, have have said they are expecting uh, with respect to the sanctions compliance program. So I think taking lessons here where in the past uh, certain companies had not been focusing as much on their sanctions compliance, I think we can, we can safely say that that expectation is, is very firmly there, um, that every company has to think about this and put in place controls in order to mitigate the sanctions risk, um, which are uh, targeted to their particular business operations. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast on sanctions compliance programs. Please let us know if you have any questions.